You're listening to the CISO Secret Podcast, brought to you by Checkpoint. And now welcome your host, James Azar. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of CISO Secrets, your host, James Azar. I've got a very special guest today, Ross Young. He's a friend and a very, very prominent CISO uh, for Caterpillar Financial. He's also a SANS instructor, uh, a former member of one of our three-letter agencies here in the greatest country on planet Earth. And so, Ross, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. You're also a podcast host, and I totally, for, you know, I, I, you're the host of the CISO Tradecraft, right? Which is which is a new and upcoming podcast, which is absolutely awesome. Yeah, that's right. We're uh, G Mark and myself mm. has started a podcast where we really wanted to train the next generation of CISOs. Think about how could we mentor and lead as many people to gaining those executive competencies, so they're not just technical but they can also influence and persuade and be those change agents that we need to help the cyber industry become what it needs to be. I love it. <clears throat> Excuse me, folks. My voice has been playing games with me all week this week. Um, so I, I do apologize. So let's get right into kind of, so on today's episode, uh, folks, one, you earn a CPE by listening to our episode today. So at some point during the episode today, I'm going to drop a keyword in. Um, you use that keyword on the link below in the description of the podcast, and you earn a CPE. So you not only get to listen to uh, Ross and I talk now for the next 40 minutes, but you also get a CPE for it. And you didn't even have to go on a Zoom call and get some vendor swag to do it. You get to listen to us. That's awesome. And number uh, and and today's topic is going to be over the um, so, so Ross did something absolutely amazing, which I now use, which is the OWASP Threat and Safeguard Matrix, also known as TASM. Correct? That's correct. Brilliant. What brought you to make this thing? So, I think anybody coming to be a first-time CISO has to look at how do I safeguard this company and not screw up too bad because nobody wants to be the CISO where you have a large data breach, your name's publicly all through the mud and that sort of thing. And, and when you look at things, there's this, this balance you have to measure between do I do all the things that really stop the real risks and do I focus on all of the compliance and regulation and oversight that I have to meet in order to do business in, in any company. And what you often find is you may spend more of your time on the regulation and compliance instead of the real things that you have to focus on to safeguard the company. And so when I saw that, you know, and, and I realized any organization has finite resources, I, I started to reflect and I said, I need to have a clear strategy where I'm going to protect against what I think the biggest threats are to, to my company and most companies. And, and let me build a way to address that that is very repeatable, that's very defendable, and I could use that to lobby for organizational resources and commitments. And, and, and it also provided accountability. I wanted my managers to see, this is what I'm signing up to do, this is how you can measure me as a CISO, and then together we will partner to change and improve security for the organization. 
which is awesome. So, th so the OWASP Threat and Safeguard Matrix, you kind of built it um, around NIST a little bit with the idea of the cybersecurity functions within NIST. So that's, you know, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover as kind of a way to identify and, and, and build a security plan, which is very effective. Why NIST? Why not maybe the CIS top 20 controls? Why not? Why did you specifically map it to NIST and not, let's say, the CIS top 20? So we need to think of cyber as the business of revenue protection. And the role of a CISO is really to engage with all of the stakeholders largely outside of the cyber department. They don't speak CIS controls. They don't speak FISMA or NIST-CSF. They speak common business risk language. And I think the idea of the functions of identify detect, protect, those sorts of things are very easy to understand, right? When I say access management and I go into phone management, now I'm speaking geek to them, right? And, and, and I got to be able to translate into a high level thing that, that really resonates. And, and I thought this was clear. Plus, NIST-CSF is, is such a well-mapped out framework with so many things it may not be the perfect thing, right? A lot of people use ISO and, and, and other standards, but it's so common to see it wasn't a stretch for me to invent something brand new either. Yeah, no, and, and again, like there's, uh, I like the way you've, you've built this matrix, folks, and the link to the OWASP uh, threat and safeguard matrix is gonna be also available below, so you guys can actually see this. Um, I remember you sending this to me before you published it and playing around with it. And there's, it really does get you to kind of simplify your security plan. You've really brought it down to a level where I don't want to say it's cybersecurity for dummies, but if you know what you're doing a little bit, if you, if you know your assets, you're able to really kind of, you know, spread it across. So tell us a little bit about how you use the, the, the TASM to really excel your, your your kind of approach to security? So what I saw was almost every company begins with some type of a risk register where we document in our organization almost every company has a a fundamental focus where we start with a risk register where we say here's all the risks that we think are going to affect our company here's a likelihood on one side and here's a severity on the other and, and then we, we rank these things and we say these are the, the, the highest and, and these are the lowest ranked risks. But what I didn't like about that is just because we identified these things, which is fantastic, did we really build a plan to safeguard our company, right? Because we all know if, if we don't have a defensive plan that is, you know, really well thought out, those risks are likely to actualize because you didn't actually stop them. And so that's what I started. And, and when I started thinking about this problem, the first thing that I saw that was really influential in my line of thought is the OWASP Cyber Defense mat Matrix by Sunil Yu. And, and what he does is he uses on one side the, the NIST functions of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And on the other side, he puts different layers of technology. And, and I thought this was interesting. It, it really affected my line of thinking because it helped me to understand that we could chunk things in a, in a portfolio way 
But what I really wanted to do was have something I could communicate to the business. And, and they don't care about technology layers. They care about things that can really cause harm, these threats or these attacks. And so I started looking at the insurance industry to say, okay, we have certain major events where we have to pay large, uh, or essentially we have to go to the insurance company to cover us because of our cyber losses. And, and I started to see some major trends. The number one attack for every company today is phishing. After that, ransomware is something we're seeing hit so many companies, especially mm -hmm. if you're in the healthcare sector, and then web application attacks and, and third-party data loss. And, and I, I put a dot, 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 because there's a lot of other items that could be unique to your industry. You know, perhaps you're in a place where you have high insider threat. You know, maybe you're working in an intelligence agency or something like that, but, but it allows people to be a little bit creative. So what, what you want to do is initially focus on interview all the people in your company, get a consensus of what is the larger threat that is really occurring, and then let's build this defense in depth plan to, to solve it. So I, I love it as as you kind of go through the plan, right, you look at the, the matrix aspect of it and one thing that you and i you know have discussed previously on some uh, other podcasts we've done and also kind of in our in our conversations is the idea of, of kpis and cybersecurity matrix um you talk a little bit about how you add matrix to the plan could you just explain how you utilize this to add matrix and then how do you define your your personal matrix almost yeah, so, so let's just take the example of phishing and walk through that with the matrix. Right. So if we're worried about phishing targeting our company because they're going to launch ransomware and, and this is the entry vac vector, we need to think about how we can stop it at different phases. One might be, what are all the users that I have to educate on phishing detection and, and prevention? Right, Because if I don't even know the users and I'm only targeting 10 out of 1,000 users in my company, well, the other people aren't going to have that security awareness. And, and then you think of the protect side. You know, How do we have something like a, a proof point or some email security solution we're going to put in our organization to, to, to stop things? And what other controls like adding multi-factor authentication where if my password is compromised, they still don't know the the pin number that changes all the time, right? Those sorts of things. And so as we start to think a little bit more broader of not just all I have to do is buy one proof point and I'm good, but how do I identify, detect, respond, right? So maybe a phishing attack has already occurred. What do I have to do post facto, right? And, and that's where this matrix really lays it out. And then as you enumerate all of your defenses, what you need to understand is not everything is a as effective as another thing and, and, and where you can make impact as a CISO. So let's say I have two things that I can do. One is I can really train users on how to report a phishing attempt and, and by adding a simple office plugin, right? So they, they click this little button says report phishing and it goes to the incident response team and then we block it for the entire company uh, on that Spearfish email. That may be one thing. And another thing would be, okay, I'm just going to change a couple settings and proof point to, to harden it, if you will. Well, 
if one gives me a drastic change because I don't have that outlook today and I add that tomorrow and that just significantly adds, you know, a, a huge amount of reporting versus the other one, I'm already 90% there and adding another feature just maybe gets me to 91. It, there's not a big of a change and a gap and improvement in overall cyber defenses. So w what I really wanted to focus on is how do I choose which things I think are going to provide the most new value to the company? And then afterwards, how do I tie that back to a metric where I can show adoption, right? If you're thinking about how do I be that change man management agent, it's if I got to get to 30% and I'm at 5% today, how do I actually measure every quarter? Well, I got to 7%, I got to 9%. So we're trending in a, a good direction and overall we're getting there. Because if we're not, then, then what am I doing wrong and how can I change that? So you base this a lot over the idea, you know, in this specific example, which is which, which is very interesting, is kind of you took uh, phishing and you talk, you, we talk a lot about phishing simulations and, and that being a vector of attack. Um, how do you really, though, how, so, so I guess my question here would be, what's, when you look at the user reports and you're trying to hit specific, you know, we, we always try to set goals for ourselves. Um, and a lot of times we're setting our goals in security ourselves and reporting on our own goals because sometimes the business doesn't even know how to set proper goals for security, right? They're like, how secure are we? Really secure, extremely secure, somewhat secure, not secure at all, right? And you're like, um, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, we're extremely secure. Can I get a raise now, please? Look, I'm hitting all my KPIs. I'm hitting all my matrix. With phishing user reports, though, a lot of it has to do with the, the human element, right? How do you deal with the human aspect of of phishing? You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. A few days ago, I get an email from a person. I have no clue who it is, but it's a legitimate business, right? And um, I, I look at the email. I realize the email is a phishing email. It's full of malware. I look up the company on Google. I call them up and I go, hey, just wanted to let you know your CEO's email has been breached. I'm getting a bunch of emails. I suggest you guys, you know, let people know like, hey, we're th this isn't the CEO. We're not sending anything. We're just a, uh, you know, our email got, got breached. And the lady goes, well, you think that's important? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because apparently, you know, someone hacked your CEO's email and then sent emails to a bunch of people using your CEO's name. And I'm not even a customer of yours. I don't even know who you guys are. I had to look you up on Google. Wow. So when you think of like the human element of phishing, how do you really measure effectiveness? Because is, is let's say 80% good enough or is 85% good enough? Do you measure it based on just a general number in your, or in your head? Or do you kind of break it down into maybe departments and risk as well? So I think there's a couple areas where you can do this. You know, one is you probably need to differentiate between the two types of phishing uh, that you have. You may have a monthly phishing exercise that you conduct as an organization. And then the latter is you have real phishing attacks that you're monitoring from incident response uh, tickets that you, you're setting up. And we have chosen to do the first one. Uh, 
as an organization, and and I think that's very common because the latter doesn't really target the entire company. Every month, not all 100,000 employees from Caterpillar get a phishing email that is identical and we can baseline them as an organization. But with the first one, you can. You can send the same email to the marketing department, to the HR department, to the IT department, and figure out who's at most at risk, right? Who doesn't understand that this is a phishing attack that you need to worry about? The other thing that I will say is, uh, just to your point, it largely depends on the human factor. And, and you can think of, if I send a Nigerian uh, scam, most people are pretty desensitized to that and, and know that that is a, a spam that, or a phishing attack that they're just going to mark. But if I send another phishing attack that says, hey, baby kitten was found in the parking lot and we're wondering who this might belong to, and I have this cute picture of this adorable kitten that people are going to want to click on, well, there's probably some cat lovers that's going to bring that percentage much higher than a lot of my traditional phishing attacks. So what we want to do is take a sampling of these types of attacks that we're seeing. We want to take some phishing exercises that map to the threat intelligence reporting that we're getting. If everybody is still you know, targeting COVID, chances are you probably need to try a COVID phishing uh, attack against your employees, right? And, and then look at what you want to measure. Is it response time? How long did it take to the first person actually responded this was a, a fish? Is it the reporting rate? What percentage of users actually reported the phishing email? And, and if that's maybe your desire is to get to 10%. And, and that could be a very lofty goal for an organization. Those sorts of things allow you to, to measure and you have to do it frequently because like I said, it changes so much on the content of just one phishing attack. That's a that's a really interesting um, that's a very interesting approach. I like that um, a lot. That's 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 very useful. Talk a little bit about when when you look at um, the matrix aspect as well, right? Um, you know, phishing is a is a pretty um, I say it's a pretty standard example. What about the compliance aspect of it? Because the plan does, you know, um, um, the plan, the TASM does kind of show a little bit more of, of, of a compliance, you know, whether you're using ISO or SOC 1, SOC 2 reports and so forth. How, you know, do you feel like those really measure up to what we look at from a security perspective? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you this. Here's a personal opinion. Hold it against me. I despise SOC 2 reports. I think SOC 2 reports tell me nothing about security. They're purely compliance done by accountants. So <laughs> I find it to be almost, um, um, I, I find it extremely challenging uh, with SOC 2. Now, I appreciate the ISO 2701 standard because I feel like the ISO 27001 standard is a really good standard, but the SOC 2 to me just seems a little bit more of a, uh, do you have these controls in place? I'm signing off on it um, rather than maybe a more comprehensive approach. W why did you map those into TASM? Like, wh why do you use those as well? So when I built out the TASM, and you'll see the example of it, it's split between processes, people, and technology right. in, in, in this cyber scorecard, there's a couple of things I really wanted to, to focus on. And, and the idea is 
if you use SOC 2, ISO, NIST ESF, they're going to map to some large umbrella of controls, right? And, and, and let's just say there's 200 things I have to be compliant with. The problem with any compliance that I have is no matter what you do, there, it lacks the importance factor of what do I need to do first? And, and let me just give you an example. If somebody tells me, hey, Ross, you need to do logging and monitoring, and, and it's part of a compliance requirement, all goodness, I, I totally believe this. I'm not going to say logging and monitoring is bad. And then somebody also says, hey, Ross, you need to have basic antivirus updates on all of your laptops at a 99% rate every month. I think you could probably say that having good antivirus on the desktops is more valuable than the logging. Because if you don't have that, bad things are going to happen already in your environment. And so there's a, a priority of where you want to focus. And compliance will, will make you lose your ability to control the work that's done. If it says, hey, here's the 10 things you need to do because you're not compliant with, it, it totally overrides the goal of the CISO, which says the most important thing may be getting the critical vulnerabilities out before I focus on these next level logging and monitoring things that are really important. But if I haven't done the basics, I, I have to fix those things first. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about creating your, your cyber report card, because in the cyber report card, you talk a lot about process, people, and technology. You have a thing called, uh, which I really like, called cyber vigilance. Uh, <laughs> I love cyber vigilance because it really goes back to what we were talking about just a minute ago around the phishing and kind of the user report. So when you when you build a you know when you build your report card as you're kind of going through the matrix um your 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 cyber vigilance aspect you you really look at phishing click rate and phishing phishing reporting rate as kind of being your two key indicators but then you also have something very interesting in there software defects and you know we're in the aftermath of solar winds uh <laughs> so software defects tends to be something um that i think when people saw this pre-solar winds were like software defects what are you talking about now post-solar winds they're like software defects yes let's talk about that so let's talk a little bit about your your software defects and what does that mean and how does that apply within the cyber vigilance cyber scorecard so software defects is the term that I kind of created that said the percentage of developer teams which track and review application security findings. And, and what I mean by that is I wanted a leading indicator to understand where developers were going. If, if I've identified 100,000 vulnerabilities that I want teams to burn down because they pose critical risk to our financially significant applications, and those teams have not even planned the work into their agile sprint stories, I have no chance for getting that done, right? Because it's not even on their, their plan of work. But if I can have an indicator that says, okay, this amount of work is being planned, now I can estimate where I'm going to get to from a vulnerability reduction in a month or two once those stories have been executed. So this allows me as a CISO to be able to say, okay, what's my risk tolerance? 
and how can I provide that information back to the business to say, here's where you're going to be a month or two months ahead of time or I mean, in, in mm -hmm. the future based on this leading indicator of what percentage of the defects are actually going to be worked by the developers. Okay. So, all right. So, interesting. Okay, brilliant. Get it. Let's talk a little bit about supply chain. So, I brought up solar winds. The TASM talks a little bit about supply chain, but how do you factor more of the supply chain in now, especially as as people really start to to look at their um, software supply chain more seriously post solar winds? So, in the security scorecard, you're going to see something called TPRA findings, and this stands mm -hmm. for third party risk assessments. And if you look at it today, it's it's largely one of the top three attacks for companies, which is maybe Google doesn't get breached, but if Google sends their data to this third party who loses the data or you know it accidentally exposes it in an S3 bucket, you know it's still going to be attributed back to to Google losing the data because it makes a better news story. So when you think about it from a organizational perspective, what would you implement to show that you're doing due diligence on this? And, and really what this comes back to is the insurance industry, which is if there is a breach from a third party, I need to still go to my insurance provider to say I need money back to cover the cost of this breach. And they're going to say, hey, Ross, sorry you had a breach. Show us the due diligence you did to make sure that this third party was actually securely handling your data before you exposed it to them. And organizations, what they're going to do is some type of a vendor assessment questionnaire, right? This commonly looks like a SIG, S-I-G, or a Cloud Security Alliance, C-A-I-Q, which is essentially just a questionnaire that says, here's the security best practices we expect organizations to uphold. Do you comply with each one of these things? And each of this is filled out by the vendor, right? So they could be lying or they could be truthful. Hopefully they're truthful. And, and in addition to this, you typically see other organizations say, I want some third party validation. I want a SOC 2 type 2 or an ISO 27001 report by a auditor. Let's just say it's one of the big four accounting companies to say, hey, you told me you did this, but we actually verified. And so there's some level of increased trust around that. Now, once you have this TPRA process, this third-party risk assessments, you're going to have findings. Some companies are not going to be meeting all of your CAIQ uh, requirements. Maybe they don't have SAML. Maybe they don't run you know, dynamic application security tests or vuln management in a timely manner. And those sorts of findings are what your business needs to understand and, and we would use a risk acceptance process around this. And so we would say, hey, this company you want to send data to, here's the classification of the data that you're going to send them and they can't do this thing. We may or may not have a mitigating control we can apply and here's a level of risk. And then the organization gets to accept it, gets to transfer it, gets to mitigate it or gets to you know not accept it. And, and those things we document in a risk register and approve you know, going forward. And then what we wanted to have is some way where we could say, 
hey, we thought we were going to remediate this risk in a year from now when the company was going to add this new feature that added SAML and that was a gap. Well, if a year went by and the company didn't, were they just telling you that to get the sale and, 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 and lying to you? Or was there like a, a understandable you know, software delay? So how do we revisit this to understand the risk and make sure that we're still tracking the things that are important to us as an organization? And when these things you know, come up a year from now, and, and that was just an arbitrary time, but maybe it's two years or, or a year and a half, depending on how often you want to revisit these risks, you say, okay, is this still relevant? Is my organization still willing to accept this based off our risk tolerance at this point in time? And how do we track this as an organization to see, hey, over the last two years, we've accepted a lot more risk than we ever thought we wanted to. Or maybe all our risks are only coming from this you know, one division in the Middle East or Latin America. And is that appropriate or is this one leader too aggressive with the risk and we need to take this up to a higher level risk committee kind of view, if you will? So that makes a ton of sense. We're going to move into threat modeling in just a moment, though. Um, I want to give people their keyword for today's episode where they get to earn one full CPE courtesy of our friends over at Checkpoint. The keyword is Maestro, Mike, Alpha, Echo, Sam, Tango, Romeo, Oscar, Maestro. Do you like how I said that in uh, in, in military? That's pretty sweet, right, Ross? Very nice. You could be a ham radio <laughs> operator. I, I could be. I could be, but I don't ever want to do that ever again. Um, uh, I think doing that enough in basic is, is, is just enough of that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about thread modeling because SolarWinds has um, made us all go back to the drawing table and start a new thread and, and, and do all kinds of thread modeling. I know that's what we did like three, four days post the discovery of it. We just sat down and we did, you know, a bunch of different thread modeling sessions and, 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 and kind of stuff like, uh, and, and a lot of exercises around thread modeling. So let's talk a little bit about how you use TASM to enhance your threat modeling a little bit, because I found that to be probably one of the most, um, uh, interesting aspects of it, uh, seeing it originally and now like actually using it in in the business and kind of trying to to enact it a little bit more and challenging the thinking around it. So so talk a little bit about how how you actually use it for threat modeling. So when you think about threat modeling, one of the things is it feels like this concept that's vague at best where okay, we identify what's can go wrong, what are we going to do about it? But how do we do this in a consistent, repeatable way where if I had to socialize this idea across 10,000 developers, I would have consistent results? And what I saw was there was a couple things that I found really helpful in all the threat models that I had seen in my prior life at Capital One. One was I wanted a network diagram that showed the flow or the data flow of the information. How does it go from one system to another so I could understand the touch points of where system boundaries were? The second thing I needed to understand was what is the data being exchanged at each one of these steps? Because that helps me understand what I need to have from a security protection point, right? If this is PCI data from this step to here, I may have certain types of controls that I don't need where there's non-PCI data. 
And so you build this data flow diagram. And then on the right hand side, you allow the developers the creativity to think about the threats of what could go wrong. And then how do they actually think about this in this defense in depth framework, which is, let's say we believe that this website here has no logging and monitoring. So we believe it's at risk from an insider threat perspective because it's, it's banking data. Well, how would I identify how many administrators could cause that harm? How would I protect against it? Is there some way where they have to check out credentials from an ARC site or something before they can log into a box and have access to it? And is there a two-person rule where, you know, somebody else has to look and approve the changes? You know, things like that where I could really make it not just one person causing harm, but it would take a, a number of folks to do that. And when this change happened, you know, maybe one person did it by himself uh, or herself, how would I detect against that, right? Is there some type of log or report that said, hey, this administrator did this activity and logged into this box? How do I know this is an actual admin and not just a hacker who logged into the box and did things, right? So as we start to think through these different levels of how would I respond and recover to this, it allows us a simple way to create and map out these common threats. And, and here's where it gets really good. As we have these for, for a, a process, maybe we say every team has to do this once a year during their architectural review boards of their project. And we, we sit through 20 of these and we now start to see trends. Hey, 15 different teams said that there was no centralized logging platform that could really help the organization. And so they have to build a custom one on themselves. Interesting. So you're telling me that that is a common threat that as an organization, if we solved, we might actually improve developer time by providing a centralized service to give them more time back to themselves. Interesting. That might be something we could bring back to the business in addition to just providing them functional ways that they can improve the security. So understanding these trends and building a consistent way that is repeatable, that is auditable, is, is very powerful for organizations that are in high oversight and scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great way because when you think of overly compliant organizations, right, the you know financial services, for example, or industrial control systems, um, healthcare, we tend to have to look at threat modeling and compliance a, a little bit differently than, let's say, um, a non-highly regulated business unit, if that makes sense. So, so the threat modeling aspect of TASM really, I can tell you that on a personal note, um, you know, I'm in financial services like you are, and, and we, I've used it multiple times with uh, with regulators who will come through to just you know kind of have a chat, and we'll pull up the we'll pull up the ta t t TASM uh, threat matrix, and I'll just be like, hey, here's what we're looking at, here's the stuff, here's what we're working on securing, here's what we'd like to secure, um, and here's where we stand on some of the stuff. So it's just beyond compliance. I think we you reach a point which your regulators a lot of times and, 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 and the different people who you work with and kind of where the conversation is, I don't want to say less official, but it's more of a open form discussion rather than let me impress you, let me give you, uh, because this, there's a human element 
to it like all things uh the tasm takes i think the tasm takes that into into play um when you look at it for a from a risk committee perspective you also kind of really do break it down per per threat can can you kind of just give us a quick rundown of you know how tasm helps improve kind of uh, risk committees and and their ability to to really build those functions and safeguards so we talked about in the TASM, there is this vertical axis of threats and on the horizontal axis, there is the, the functions of NIST of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, and we enter the safeguards. And what's really cool about this model is it works beyond just cyber. Now, if you, if you took most of our other cyber models, we're speaking geek to this chief mm-hmm. finance officer we're speaking right. geek to the chief risk officer to the legal officer they don't they don't know you know the tech and, and that's fine they're not they don't need it for their role but they need to understand threats and they have threats of their own right there's market rest market regulation threats there's covid threats that are happening there's changing interest rates if you're working overseas and so what we see is by adding one more column to the left side where we might just say organization, we can start to list a variety of threats beyond just cyber. And this really allows a risk committee the ability to use one framework that identifies threats in a consistent, repeatable fashion. And then as an organization, you can say, well, in relation to market risk, how big is the cyber threat? And if I can say a cyber threat here is going to cost $1 billion, and I can show that a market risk is only $100,000, that's a clear thing for me to say cyber is, is, is you have to spend you know, to reduce that risk. And, and this is something that actually really helps CISOs, right? If the risk committee agrees that these things are the most important, they can help be your proponents on budget and getting those things that you need to secure the organization. The other thing that also really helps is because we're cyber folks, we tackle things from a cyber point of view. But what if there was an interesting legal solution to a cyber problem, right? What if HR had a really good way to deal with uh, you know, nefarious admin? they can look at how you're proposing to solve this threat that you thought of as a cyber threat and holistically we can work together to build a better approach and a better safeguard for the organization that includes the other parts of the risk committee and so together when we unify our view where cyber provides insights to help the anti-money laundering which may be a business risk and identify there we become a better risk committee yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, listen, uh, we're almost out of time, so I want to say this. The TASM is awesome. I know you did this on your free time. I know this has kind of been like an open project for you that you're sharing to better the community. And I think for, for, for a lot of people listening, it's not only worth spending time reviewing it, it's worth doing some of those exercises. Because I remember the first time you sent it to me, I was like, okay, interesting. And then the more, it took me about three times of reading it and understanding it to really understand its impact. And that's just my personal experience, right? Some people may get it the first time. It took me three times. But the third time, once it sunk in, 
it sunk in and it was really easy to deploy and it became kind of it becomes quickly part of a dna of also not only how you look at your security program but also your decision making capabilities right it just kind of helps you kind of focus away from you know the noise and lets you focus in on your core because in cyber we're always surrounded by noise we're always uh, surrounded by noise so how do you quiet down the noise and really focus on what you need to be focused on to do your job effectively successfully and really defend and protect the company uh that that you're working with and for so that that's critical and this has been a great great tool ross i appreciate you doing this podcast with me i'm very grateful thank you james and what i'll say to the listeners here is i know it's sometimes a little hard to just hear about it please go to the OWASP webpage and and look at it. I know James is going to post the link, but you'll be able to see the pictures of what it looks like and read the the story of of how things work and how you can utilize this TASM. And and I think as you see it and read it, and it's a very short read, it's just like a couple pages, it will blow your mind how much this can really help you and your organization. Yeah, it's definitely a great tool. Folks, Ross Young, he's a legend. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see more things from from Ross. Don't forget his CISO Tradecraft podcast, which is great. Um, um, I'm a subscriber and I love it. Um, it's 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 a very good podcast. It's a, it's a very different from everything else that's out there. So you guys should definitely check it out. That's it for us here for another episode of CISO Secrets. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Make sure to claim your CPE credit. Keyword is Maestro. Link is below in the description of the podcast. You can click it there. Until next time, folks, thanks so much for tuning in and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues.